All right, Acts chapter 14 in your Bibles tonight, Acts chapter number 14. And I have to tell you that when uh, I selected the book of Acts to be uh, to have us do verse by verse, I, I knew what was in store, the first eight, nine, ten chapters of the book. Um, of all of the book of Acts that I have studied, the, the part we're in now is probably the part I have studied the least and knew the least about. Obviously, I've read the book of Acts through many times and uh, had college classes and things on it, but had not really studied this in great depth and was a little less familiar with this. And so uh, as I began to get into these uh, passages, I've had to work a little bit harder to understand them and uh, try to do these passages justice as to what God intended for the church. I do believe the book of Acts was written to church-era saints. And uh, on Wednesday evenings, we're going through the book of Isaiah that was not written directly to church-age saints. That was written to the nation of Israel. Um, but there are applications we can take from there. But the book of Acts was written to us. And there's a lot here for us to be able to draw out and understand uh, to be able to encourage us. And I hope tonight's message will really challenge us. I will tell you that I normally come to the pulpit with about five pages of notes. And I do have five pages of notes tonight. But, I mean, I have five jam-packed pages of notes. So I'm going to do my best to be cognizant of the time. Uh, but I have a lot of material for us to try to get through. So let's get standing and let's get going tonight. Acts chapter 14 and we're going to look at the first five verses. We are going to be looking at the entire chapter tonight of Acts 14. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time therefore abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them. We'll keep reading the passage here in a little bit, but the title of the sermon this evening is this, No Guts, No Glory. No Guts, No Glory. Boy, Paul and Barnabas are going to put, it, put their lives on the line in their pioneering efforts with the gospel in a region that was just a stranglehold of Satan, a stronghold of Satan. And boy, it took some guts for them to stand in there and preach. And because of that, they're going to get to see quite a bit of good come out of that, uh, not only in that moment, but in the many, many years to come. Let's pray this evening. Lord, help us and challenge us. Many of us need boldness. Many of us are controlled by our own fear. Lord, sometimes it's of what other people think of us. Um, but Lord, our fear all the same. And uh, Lord, we need boldness. Boldness to stand and boldly proclaim, even in the face of... Danger, Lord, we need to be able to take a stand for you and do what's right. And so, Lord, as we look at the life of Paul and, uh, and then also the life of Barnabas, may we be encouraged to follow in their footsteps and boldly proclaim the gospel to those that need it most. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, anything worth truly having in life uh, cannot be attained without some sort of sacrifice. Some things require great, great sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, the 
more rewarding it is when you have earned it, especially if you've had to suffer in order to get it. And Paul would write in his letter to the church of Rome, he would say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. That means you're willing to lay, lay it all down on the line for the Lord Jesus Christ because He was willing to lay it all down on the line for you. It's all daily a sacrifice to the Lord. And to the church of Philippi, Paul would write, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. And so whatever I do, I'm going to do it for the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm alive, it's about Christ. If I die, I get to be in the presence of Christ and I gain. In Acts chapter 14, we, fall, we find Paul and Barnabas sent out by the church of Antioch for the purpose of taking the gospel to regions that did not know Jesus. They were bearing light in utter darkness. There was no gospel message there. Prior to their arrival, there were no converts. There were no Christians. Nobody knew about Jesus and His resurrection. They were walking into a pitch black, spiritually pitch black and utter dark area, and they were shining a bright light for people to hear the gospel. Now, uh, uh, quickly to review, Paul would take three planned missionary journeys and then a fourth that was unplanned or forced as he was in prison. But let's focus on those first three. Uh, what were the purposes of those three missionary journeys of Paul's. Notice the first missionary journey was a pioneering effort. He went forth pioneering with his light into spiritual darkness. The second missionary journey, he did a lot of planning. Planning, it was organizing and helping put churches together. We'll see here at the end of the first missionary journey, he begins this process. But he um, primarily in his second missionary journey, he went about planning and helping to get in order churches. And then the third missionary journey, his purpose was preaching, reestablishing and fighting off apostasy and establishing right doctrine in these churches that had been planted through good preaching. In Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul would leave the church and, and, and head to the island of Cyprus. If we could have the map put up there, okay. I'm going to try to use my laser pointer. So they started out here in a church of Antioch, and uh, they boarded a ship and headed here to Cyprus. They landed here on this side, the, let's see, I'm thinking in American terms, that'd be the east side of the island. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Is that east? How many don't know east from west? Amen. Okay. East right there, you're like me. Okay. And then uh, they, they landed here, they went in the synagogue, they taught Jesus, and they worked their way over here to the west side of the island. So when they were on the east side of the island, uh, they were in a city called, uh, let's see here, uh, Salamis. They got over here to the city of Paphos in Cyprus, and this is where they met, and they, uh, they, they were uh, confronted by a man named Bar-Jesus, and um, Sergius Paulus was the Roman ruler. Sergius Paulus got saved, and Bar-Jesus was at least temporarily blinded because of his opposing of the missionaries. And then uh, uh, when they left the island, it had gone from being Barnabas and Paul to Paul being in the forefront and Barnabas being in the lead, and they would head up here into an area where uh, Paul was 
was familiar. He had grown up in this area. They landed in Perga in Pamphylia. Perga in Pamphylia. And upon their arrival, John Mark looked at the territory. He looked at the danger. He looked at Paul, the crazy guy who had taken charge. And he decided it was too much for him. And so he packed his bags and he went home to Mama. You say, did he actually go home to Mama? Yes. He went to Jerusalem and that's where his mother lived. And so he packed his bags and he quit and went home. And so then Paul and Barnabas and Luke, and no, no telling who else was with him, they traveled northward through the Tarsus mountain range up to a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch in Pisidia. And there they were, uh, uh, they would go into the synagogue and they would teach Jesus to the people and they would end up being discredited by the prominent members of society. And then they would be thrown out of town, literally picked up and thrown out of town. Maybe not literally, but figuratively anyway, picked up and thrown out of town. And there they would dust the, the uh, they would wipe the dust off their feet, kick the dust off their feet, and they would head on uh, and uh, head on to the next town, the town of Iconium. And that's where we find them today in Acts 14 in our sermon. Acts 14, we find them in the city of Iconium. Okay, so uh, they what do they do? They go right back into the synagogue where they will reason with the religious leaders of that town. Now, in this chapter, we will see Paul and Barnabas face threats. They will also face physical violence against their bodies, but they would not be detoured. Even in tribulation, they would not back down. They were bearing their cross for Jesus. They were willing to suffer for the one who had suffered on their behalf. Now, I want to say about missionary work, and I'm not speaking from experience. I'm speaking from biographies and autobiographies that I've read. I'm I'm speaking from uh, studying the life of Paul. But what I gather about missionary pioneering work is that it is not easy at all. It is some of the hardest uh, uh, work that we do. You see, Satan cloaks himself here in America. If you're going to teach and preach atheism in a country, then you can't be having people running around showing their demonic possession because then that kind of blows the lid on atheism. But in uh, other areas that are more tribal in nature where Satan, uh, there's spirituality there, Satan can un- take the mask off and Folks run around demon-possessed on a regular basis. My uh, sister and brother-in-law are in the Fiji Islands, and my brother-in-law grew up there. He tells me that it's a common thing to see people that are demon-possessed and to see them running around either naked or mostly naked and speaking in deep voices, gravelly voices, and and, uh, seeing all kinds of wild things and where Satan is just allowed to have free rule and, and reign. And to go into an area like that and to do missionary work... That is not easy, especially if you're the first one there. I think of Matt Sutton out in Point Hope, Alaska. Uh, he has a missionary, a ministry to the Eskimos. And uh, I think on, on a warm day, it's like 40 degrees. In fact, when it's 40 degrees, they're all running around with their shirts off up there. And uh, their bodies are acclimated to it being much colder. But he's told me about the incest and abuse to children. That's just very commonplace 
in that area and how he's going into a place that's in utter darkness and they're trying to establish a church ministry. I think of Andy Magnarella ministering to the Hopi Indians and not a lot of Baptist churches on Indian reservation range and going into utter darkness and trying to overcome a stronghold where Satan has. Pioneering work is not easy. Satan had a powerful grip on these people in Iconium and these people in Asia Minor. Uh, anytime you begin to attack the kingdom of darkness you can be sure that Satan is going to fight back. Satan is not going to let, lay down and let you take away, lie down and let you take away his, uh, his, his converts, if you will. Satan's not going to just sit back while you evangelize and see people get saved without him uh, pushing back and fighting back. And that is indeed what Paul and Barnabas had to face. Paul and Barnabas had gone into the lion's den, literally into Satan's stronghold, a lion's den. And that took guts. That took guts. Remember though, no guts, no glory. I propose that uh, there are still many regions of the world today where the gospel is not known. Many people groups live inside of a country and culture of utter spiritual darkness. God needs Christian men and women who are willing to go leave the comfort of America, leave the comfort of a a high-paying job and plow head first and take their spiritual flashlight of the gospel into this spiritual darkness to these people who need to hear the gospel message. God needs Christian men and women who are willing to go forth and preach the gospel to these people. I believe that God is calling Christians today, just like He called Paul and Barnabas. God is still in the business of calling Christians who are willing to put their life on the line and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are shackled by darkness and sin. A songwriter some time ago wrote a song about this, and I'm going to make some attempt to sing this tonight a cappella. Please be patient with me. The song goes like this. So many lost and dying in this world today. Will you hear their crying or will you turn away? The harvest now is plenteous, but the laborers are few. God needs some willing vessels to be used. Here am I, I will go, I will reach the lost untold. I will give the Lord control. I will tell them of the crimson flow. Is it too late for caring? Does Jesus really save? Are we truly praying for the blind to find their way? Little children are falling into a burning hell. Will anyone heed the Gospel to go and tell? Here am I, I will go, I will reach the lost untold, I will give the Lord control, I will tell them of the crimson flow. The song goes on and says, For my Savior died on that old rugged cross. He thought of me when He counted the cost. How can I say that I love Him if I won't reply? Here am I, I will go, I will reach the lost untold. I will give the Lord 
control. I will tell them of the crimson flow. Will you tell them of the crimson flow? I'm going to show you a video this time. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations or people groups within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb people, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to Ta Ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that. Let me give you a couple of examples here of unreached people groups. The Persians that live in Iran are the 11th largest unreached people group in the world. There are 37,677,000 of these dear precious souls. Only 1.9% of them uh, claim to be evangelical Christians. We are told 97.3% of these uh, people are Muslim. Here's another one. This is the 12th largest. This is the Java uh, Pesisir Lor in Indonesia. They're the 12th largest unreached people group in the world. 37 million 87,000 of them, 0.01% of these folks claim to be evangelical Christian. 0.01. We're told 97.2% of them are Muslim. 
Does God love these people just as much as He loves us here in America? Does God not want these people to be reached with the gospel just as much as He wanted you to be reached with the gospel? Why don't people go? People don't go because they are afraid. People don't go because they are comfortable. Many don't go because they're too carnal to even hear God's calling on their life. If God were to call them, they wouldn't even hear the call because they've got so much noise in their life that God's calling would be ignored or not even noticed. Now, I want to be clear this evening. All right, not everyone is called to go. Not everyone is called to go. Um, But I do believe that God is calling the Pauls and Barnabases of today to go. And the whole Christian life can be summed up in this phrase. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Are we willing to completely and utterly obey? Acts 14 lays out, for us the details of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. We will see their victories. We'll see their setbacks. We'll see how with boldness they proclaimed the gospel and were able to establish churches inside of the, the devil's areas of stronghold. So let's look at four thoughts this evening as we consider the title, No Guts, No Glory. All right, let's look at this point number one. Notice, persuasions... Uh, persuasion in Iconium. Their persuasion in Iconium. All right, let me give you here uh, some subpoints. Notice below that letter A, notice the word converts. Converts. Look with me at Acts 14 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Gentiles believed. I wonder as they were leaving Antioch and Pisidia and walking over to Iconium, I wonder if there was this conversation held between Paul and Barnabas about tactic, about method. Well, that didn't go so well. We went in the synagogue and we made ourselves known and lo and behold, they ended up, those folks in the synagogue are the ones that ran us out of town. Maybe we should try a different tactic and maybe Paul would have looked at Barnabas and said, well, no, we're to go to the Jews before we go to the Gentiles. So, uh, nonetheless, although they were kicked out of Antioch and Pisidia, when they got to Iconium, they did the same thing. They marched right into the synagogue of the Jews, and they preached the gospel there in that religious hub, that religious center. And if you look back at verse number 1, it says that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Gentiles believed. Boy, they stood up, they preached the gospel, and folks who were religious Jews and folks who were pagan Gentiles, both of them said, hey, that makes sense, we believe that, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus. So, boy, things are off to a great start in Iconium. Notice letter B, notice the word contention, contention. You don't go into an area where Satan has a stronghold with the gospel light and turn that on without making somebody really, really, really upset. I've used the illustration before, but nobody likes being woken up with lights right in their eyes, all right? Being a little boy and having my dad come in in the morning and just flip the light switch 
switch on and having that light hit me right in the eyes, boy, it makes me it made me a little bit cranky. It made me a little bit upset. And uh, Paul and Barnabas walk in and they turn on their gospel light and shine it right in the eyeballs of these people living in darkness. And some people are like, I can see. And other people were like, hey, turn the lights off. I'm enjoying the darkness. And so not all was smooth sailing for long. Look at verse number 2, Acts 14, 2. The Bible says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Again, Satan isn't going to just let Paul and team march into his stronghold and snatch souls away from his kingdom without a fight. The unbelieving Jews, who, by the way, hated the Gentiles, worked hard to stir up the Gentiles to refute and reject the gospel that was being preached. Look down at verse 4. Look down at verse 4. The Bible says, But the multitude of the city was divided, was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. So when you see the word Jews in verse 4, it's talking about your establishment Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees in the uh, synagogue. And so part of the folks in the city held to what the Jews, the establishment Jews said, and part of the folks in the city uh, clang to Paul. So you have team Pharisee, and then you have team Paul and Barnabas, and boy, it became divisive really quick. I imagine that there wasn't anywhere you could have gone in town and not heard this being talked about. This was what was being discussed around the, the table the, uh, at the, in the break room at work. This was being discussed around the water cooler where they were doing carpentry work. This was being discussed everywhere you went. If there was an Iconium Daily newspaper, Paul's face was front and center. And uh, they were having all kinds of uh, heated debate about who is right and who is wrong. And I want to make this clear. If you take a stand for what is right, if you preach the gospel to people that don't want to hear the gospel, don't be surprised when you make enemies in the process. It's just going to happen. There are going to be people who don't like you. In fact, Satan's going to unleash an assault on you. He's going to try to limit you. Where there are converts being reached, there is contention to be expected. Letter C. Notice the word continuance. So did Paul and Barnabas see the strife uh, they had caused? The, the, uh, the, the, the hornet's nest had been stirred and the hornets are upset and they're running around and they're attacking Paul. They're attacking his reputation. They're seeking to discredit him. By the way, real quick, I want to get this in here. If you start preaching something that folks don't like, you can expect people to try to discredit you as the messenger. If people don't like the message, they will attack the messenger. They will make up things on the messenger in order to discredit him. And so just expect personal attacks. I remembered when I was ordained into the gospel ministry, uh, the pastor who preached the sermon that night, he said to me, he said, Richard, if you're going to give your life to full-time Christian ministry, you can expect three things for the rest of your life. He said, you can expect to be misunderstood, misquoted, and misrepresented. And I have to say, all three of those things have happened many, many, many times. And so Paul was misrepresented. His words were twisted, no doubt. He was personally attacked. But did that cause Paul to get up and run and leave and just say, well, um, you know what? I'm not real popular anymore. Let me go try another city. Oh, no. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, long time, long time. Notice those words. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word 
of His grace and granted signs and wonder, wonders to be done by their hands. Again, no guts, no glory. Paul and Barnabas and team were not going to leave town over some baseless accusations and attempt attempts at character assassination. Paul and Barnabas were not going to leave town because people were upset with them or they weren't served at a restaurant or allowed uh, groceries at a grocery store. They weren't going to worry about it because maybe someone uh, left a threatening note on their uh, on their door. They were instead going to stay the course. They had a gospel, to, a, a message to preach, and they spake boldly in the Lord and they stayed a long time even though they weren't liked by at least half of the city. So uh, we see here uh, that they stood in there with boldness. They continued to preach the gospel regardless of uh, what anyone had to say about them. They weren't about to go. And what we need today are Christians with a backbone. What we need today are Christians who know what they believe and why they believe it and know uh, what God uh, purpose God has put them on this earth for. And they're not going to uh, uh, they're not going to melt away. They're not going to uh, fold up uh, like a cheap suit. They're not going to be someone who has no backbone. Uh, they're going to stand and they're strong. They're going to know what God called them to do. And they're going to engage in spiritual war, expecting Satan to fire back. And they're going to just pick up their spiritual sword and they're going to fight right back in the darkness. We need Christians who continue. I see far too many Christians who are called to do a work. And when the going gets tough, they quit. They get up and they say, I've had enough. I'm done. I'm walking away from soul winning or I'm walking away from church or I need a break or I need to sit on the sidelines for a little while, my friend, you might scuff your knee along the way. You get up, you dust yourself off, and you realize we have a race to run. Paul was not leaving because things got tough. Paul instead stood firm and strong with Barnabas, and they said, we will continue plowing forward into the darkness for the Lord. Continuance. Notice letter D, confrontation. Boy, it turned from contention, it turned from verbal to physical. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. Now, we'll see in verse 6 that once the threat level reached a point of physical altercation, they decided it was in everyone's best interest for them to leave town and let things cool off a bit. Now, you can stand courageously, but you should not be foolish. You should not be foolish. By the way, it was not Paul and Barnabas, they, at, at this point anyway, that they're physically attacking. It was the converts of Paul and Barnabas that were beginning to get attacked. And Paul and Barnabas could see that their presence was becoming counterproductive to the future church that would be established there. They decided that it was time to go. They decided that it was time to move on. It was not their safety they were concerned about. It was the safety of others. So we see, number one, their persuasion and iconium. They go in with a bright light. They shine the gospel. Boy, a host of people get saved. The city is divided. And, uh, boy, uh, persecution's turned up against uh, these new believers. And so Paul and Barnabas leave in order to ease tensions. Notice, number two, their persecution in Lystra, their persecution in Lystra. So let's go back and look at that map just for a moment. I want you to be able to visualize what's going on here. And so they started out here in Antioch, right up in this region, and they went this direction over to Iconium, and now they're going to come south a little bit 
I wish I could hold my hand more steady. Amen. Um, uh, right in that area right there is Lystra. Lystra and Derby was a little bit further over. And the Lystra-Derby area made up sort of like a metropolis. I maybe think of the Twin Cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis. And uh, there's just a big metropolis between the two. And that's what you had here. You had the Derby-Lystra area. And they would first go to Lystra. They would first go to Lystra, eventually make their way over uh, to, uh, to uh, Derby. So notice letter A, their sermon, their sermon. Now look down with me at Acts 14 and look at verses 6 and 7 here. The Bible says, They were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby, the twin cities, Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, uh, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there... What did they preach? What was their sermon? They preached the gospel. They preached the gospel. I heard someone say one time, uh, when you get in a, a conversation with someone who's trying to make things complicated, just shoot the gospel gun. Just get back to the gospel. Give the gospel message. The gospel is powerful. I met a guy one time who told me he didn't believe in God, and so I played a hypothetical pretend game with him. I said, when you were little, did you play pretend? And he said, what kind of question is that? I said, did you play pretend? He said, I imagine when I was a little guy, I probably did. I said, let's play pretend for a few minutes. Let's pretend the Bible is real. Let's pretend that God is real. Let's pretend that heaven and hell are real. Now, I believe these things. I understand that you don't. But let's just pretend for a few minutes. Can I tell you in your eyes what this pretend book tells you about how to get to a pretend God in heaven? And he said, well, why not? And so I took out my New Testament and I went through the gospel with him. And I got down to the end and boy, uh, tears were running running down his cheeks. He did not get saved right there, but I was able to plant real gospel seeds in his real heart uh, by playing, quote-unquote, scare quote, pretend. And so they go into this area. Again, it's darkness, and they preach the gospel. Now, I find it curious that they did not go to the synagogue. They went to the streets and preached. Now, when they went to Antioch and Pisidia, they went in the synagogue. And when they got to Iconium... They went in the synagogue. But when they got to Lystra, they didn't go in the synagogue. Why? What changed here? Well, I, I, the way I see it, there's two possibilities. All right? The first possibility is they decided to try a different tactic because the last two times they were thrown out of the city and then, you know, threatened to be stoned. Um, that's one possibility. I think a more likely possibility is that Lystra was so pagan there was no synagogue. There was no synagogue. So they must have gone straight to the streets and just started preaching. Well, something interesting happened while they were preaching the gospel. Notice letter B, the sick man. The sick man. What happened? Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, Paul said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. What was it that saved this man? It was his faith. Paul's preaching the gospel, and this man's sitting there. He's crippled, right? Isn't it funny that the infirmed in life sometimes have insight and wisdom that those who are supposedly whole don't have? No one else is maybe listening to Paul as he's standing out on the uh, street preaching. And all of a sudden, this man locks eyes on Paul, and Paul locks eyes on him and realizes 
This man has a whole lot of faith. And Paul, being an apostle, had the power to heal. And he looks at this man and he says, Stand up and walk. And lo and behold, the man stands up and walks. Now to me and you, okay, we saw Peter do the same thing earlier in Acts, right? Acts 3, we saw that. And we know Jesus did this over and over and over again. So it's sort of old hat for us. And we haven't personally seen it, but studying the Bible, it's old hat. But imagine this. These people had never, ever, ever heard or seen this kind of thing before. Imagine what their uh, reaction must have been. Notice letter C, the superstition. The superstition. Look down at verse number 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia. So Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's being said. This is being said in a foreign tongue. The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Juniper. And Paul, uh, well, we'll just say Mercury, okay? Because he was the chief speaker. Then, all, then the priest of Juniper, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gate and would have done sacrifice with the people. Now imagine, again, you know nothing about miracles. You live in this offbeat path away from Jerusalem and maybe you've heard of someone being healed, but I mean, you just probably thought that was, you know, some made-up fairy tale. And here this guy comes into the city, he's standing up and he's preaching and you're not really sure what he's talking about. And then all of a sudden he points at the guy and he says, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. I mean, imagine if we had somebody here tonight in a wheelchair and we all knew this person hadn't walked in 30 years or ever in their life. We had a guest preacher here preaching. Right in the middle of the service, this guest preacher looks down at the person in the wheelchair and says, Stand up and walk. And that person were to stand up and start doing laps around the auditorium. How many of you would want to get that guy's autograph at the end of the service? How many of you at least want to talk? How many of you just get up and run out the side door? You'd be spooked out, right? Wow! I mean, Paul and Barnabas, this is wild. And so they just, they're, they're superstitious people, they're pagan people. They just assume that these guys must be the gods that have been promised to them. And so they start speaking in a language that uh, Paul and Barnabas don't know. And the next thing they know, they're bringing garlands to be thrown around their neck. And they're trying to build a, an altar to sacrifice an ox on. Um, you may think, well, I mean, pastor, they were pagan people. Do, we don't have paganism like that in our culture today. And I would say, oh, really? How many of you realize the seven days of the week are named after the gods of the planets? How many of you knew that? Well, let me tell you about it. Sunday, Sunday, ever stop and think about that? I heard someone say to me one time, Pastor, we shouldn't have a Christmas tree in our church. It's pagan. And I said, well, you better not be a hypocrite then. You better find another name for the seven days of the week. There's a lot of paganism in our world. Monday is the god of the moon. Tuesday is supposed to be the god of Mars. Wednesday, god of Mercury. Thursday, god of Jupiter. Friday, god of Venus. Saturday, god of Saturn. These folks had a temple erected and priests selected for the worship of the god of Juniper. Jupiter, rather. Paul and Barnabas, in their pioneering efforts, had to deal with people's false perception of God. He had to overcome their superstition. 
letter D notice their supplication. Their supplication. Now, I worked hard to find an alliterated word that began with S that would be better fit. But the word supplication more broadly just means strongly requesting something of someone. And so usually we think of supplication and we have it glued in our mind to prayer. But more broadly, supplication can be strongly requesting something of anyone. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, "...which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, uh, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, He left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. So they just go in while they're building this altar and they're putting garlands around their neck. They rent their clothes, which is a cultural sign of grieving and, 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 and just great, uh, uh, just being disturbed, uh, personally disturbed. They run in and they throw themselves down at the mercy of the people and they say, please, we are not gods. We're just like you. Do not worship us. And they were able to keep the people from doing that. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the story takes a hairpin turn, and they go from worshiping them to trying to kill them. Letter E, notice Paul's stoning. Paul's stoning. What happens when you have an emotional group of people? The pendulum can swing and can swing quickly. All right, On a far less uh, serious nature, I've been to some baseball games where uh, they cheer a guy in the you know, in the first inning, and then they're booing him off the field when he loses the game. And, I mean, they're standing up going nuts for the guy who just hit a home run in the top of the first. He commits an error that costs them the game in the ninth inning, and all of a sudden they're booing him and cussing him as he's walking off the field. And emotional people can, uh, can, can violently swing in a hurry. And that's exactly what happened. Look at Acts 14, 19, and 20. The Bible says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch, that's Antioch and Pisidia, and Iconium. Well, those were the two places he was prior. Who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came in the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, I, I try to, the best I can, put myself there just being a spectator uh, watching this. Can you imagine they're worshiping Paul and Barnabas at one moment? And then here come these Jews from the cities Paul had been in prior. And they come into the city and they start talking amongst these people who were at just a few minutes ago worshiping them or attempting to worshiping them. And now the crowd goes from wanting to worship them, to now they've become violent and they want to kill them. And in an emotional upheaval, they grab Paul and they drag him to the outskirts of town and they put him down in the pit where they would stone people and they begin to throw and hurl stones 
at Paul. One moment he's pleading for them not to worship him. The next moment he's pleading to these same people that they not kill him. And so they believed that they had stoned him to death. And the disciples, those who had believed, uh, no doubt Paul's team came and stood around him and began to pray. And all of a sudden, Paul stood up and they were able to take him back into town and help him get better. Here's a question for all of us to consider tonight. Did Paul die here? Did Paul die here? I believe he, he probably did. I can't prove it, but I believe he probably did. Turn, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Paul would write 2 Corinthians much, much, much later um, after this event happened. We do know that at some point, Paul made a journey to heaven and back, and this sure seems to fit as the place that maybe he would have made that journey to heaven and back. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at the first five verses, okay? The Bible says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, he's going to talk about a person uh, as though it isn't him. Many Bible scholars believe Paul is describing himself here. Look at verse 2. I knew a man in Christ about above 14 years ago, and this would have been on the timeline about the same time he would have been in Lystra. About 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. He said, I will glory in the fact that I was stoned, but I will not glory in the fact that I have gone to heaven. Now, what happened? I believe that Paul was killed here in Lystra, but God sent him back. God sent him back. Um, let me just insert this here. God chooses when he's done with you here. God makes that choice. I've seen a lot of people who've made a lot of fearful decisions over the last couple of years. And I'm not trying to be little or be unkind to anyone. I'm just am more trying to give you a point of growth and a point of encouragement. Let's make sure that our decisions are not being made out of fear of death. Why do Baptist Church? Let me just be very clear on this. God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. God is the sustainer of life. Now, we're not to tempt fate, but we are to be faithful and obedient to the God's command. And we're to leave our death date up to the Lord and not try to manipulate that or control that or prolong that. If God wants you to be alive, He'll keep you alive. Paul was preaching the gospel and ended up being stoned and most likely killed. And God said, Paul, I'm not done with you yet. And he's sending back. He's sending back. Was Paul tempting fate by marching into the lion's den and, 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 and preaching the gospel? Oh, no, he wasn't. Paul would have been tempting fate if he would have thrown himself off a bridge or off the top of a temple asking God to spare his life. Paul was just simply being obedient in a dangerous place. The persuasion in Iconium, their persecution in Lystra, number three, notice they're planting 
of new churches. Now the sermon's going to pick up speed and will be done here in just a few minutes. For many, being stoned to death or near death would have been a breaking point. They would have quit. And listen, I'm not going to say they would have been wrong for quitting. I can, I can understand if Paul would have said, Okay, I've, take, I've got my marks, I've got my stripes, I'm done. I'm going back to Antioch and I'm going to stay uh, where it's safe and I'm just going to preach the gospel there. You know, I was just about killed, but not Paul. Not Paul. He went back into town and the next day he was back on the street. The next day he was back on the street preaching the gospel. He got stoned, most likely to death. They brought him in. Luke, the physician, was healing his wounds, probably saying to him, you need to stay in bed for two weeks. And Paul said, I ain't staying in bed nothing. He got up, he walked right back out on the street, and he's back out preaching the next day. I can imagine those folks out there thinking, didn't we kill him yesterday? What's he doing back out there? That guy's crazy. Letter A. Let me give you an A, B, and C here. Letter, letter A, notice, steps retraced. Steps retraced. Look at Acts 14. Look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby. In verse 20 we see they go to Derby. That's the neighboring town to where Paul was stoned. When they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derby, and had taught many, look here, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium, and Antioch. As if it wasn't enough that he had stirred the pot before, he's going back to each of these cities where he has shined the gospel light and he's going back. Now, um, what did he do here? Did he go back and go back into the synagogue and make a big stink again? No, this time he would sort of sneak in, I believe. I believe. I think he probably snuck in and out of these cities, maybe under the cover of dark, and he went there specifically to minister to those who were going to make up the early church. Letter B, notice support given. Support given. Look at verse number 22. The Bible says, confirming. I have that word underlined in my Bible. Confirming the souls of the disciples. Here's another word. And exhorting. That one underlined as well. Exhorting them to, the next word also underlined, continue. Confirming, exhorting ex- uh, them to continue in the faith. Look at this next phrase here. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That's a powerful sermon. He's standing there having just just a, a day ago, maybe a week ago, having been stoned himself, and he's looking these new believers in the eye, and he's saying to them, if you're going to establish the kingdom of God, you must be willing to suffer tribulation. Well, Paul is leading the charge, is he not? Paul knows what it was like to be to suffer tribulation, to suffer for the kingdom of God. He goes through to these churches and he confirms them. Let her see, notice, he, rather, he supports them emotionally, spiritually. Let her see, notice, structure assigned. Structure assigned. And so Paul now is transitioning out of the pioneering, and now he's transitioning into the planning phase of his mission work, which he'll pick back up in the second missionary journey. Look at 23. And when they, this is Paul and Barnabas, when they had ordained them elders, the word elder in the New Testament uh, is synonymous with the word pastor, church leader, when they ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they went back to these cities. 
They backtracked through where they had already been. They backtracked through where they had pioneered. They gathered together the believers who had believed. They found those who were ready to lead in the church, the leaders of the church. They ordained them. They fasted. They prayed over them. They assigned a structure to the church, and then they departed. And we'll see that in all three of Paul's missionary journeys, he's going to stop through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch and reconfirm these churches. So we see, number one, their persuasion in Iconium. Number two, their persecution in Lystra. Number three, their planting of new churches. And number four, and finally notice, their passage home. Their passage home. Letter A, notice their travels. Their travels. Look at verse number 24 with me. The Bible says, And after they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, so as they're traveling, they're preaching. As they're traveling, they're, they're giving the gospel. Uh, they went down into Attilia and thence sailed to Antioch. This is the Antioch they originated from. Uh, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. Let her be notice their testimony. Their testimony. What did they do when they got back to Antioch, the church that had sent them out, the church that the two of them together had once led? They gave a report of what had happened in their journeys. Look at 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the, God, with the disciples. So they finished their first journey in uh, Acts 14. And what they do? They got up in church and they gave a report of what God had used them to do in their travels. When we have a missionary come and stand up here and give a report uh, to us that we're financially supporting and give a report to the church of what they're doing for the Lord on the mission field, that is biblical. That model is laid out here in the end of Acts 14. Uh, Antioch sent them out. They came home. They reported to the church what, uh, what all had taken place. And so they uh, were able to give those testimonies. So some give so others can go, and God calls others to go. Let me just say this, and I'll be done tonight, okay? We're, we're just about done. Let me have your attention um, uh, just for a couple more minutes. God calls everyone who is saved to be involved in worldwide missions. Everyone. If you're a Christian, you have an obligation to get the gospel to the entire world. Now, how are you personally involved? Let me ask you tonight. How are you personally involved? Brother Scarpetti has taken some trips over to Indonesia. He's done some mission work over there. Ms. Pam Dalton has traveled to Europe and done some mission work herself, going over there and ministering to missionaries and being an encouragement. Some of you are involved in your mission work by texting and emailing our missionaries and staying engaged. Some of you are doing nothing. Nothing. You know, there are two ways you can support missionaries that are already on the field. The first way is you can pray for them. Some of you here don't have any money to give. Can you pray? Can you pray? You ought to get a list of our 52 missionaries we support, and you ought to pray for all of them regularly. Get to know their names. Get to know their children's names. Get to know what they're going through. Communicate with them. If you're a person of means and you have money, get a passport and go visit them. Go encourage them. Find out about a financial need they have. Put a care package together for them. Love on them. Some of you can do more than just pray. 
Praying is a good starting point. In fact, it's a, it's a must. It's not just something we do in passing. It is as important as anything else we do. Some of you can also give. You can give. You can dig deep in your pocket and you can give. Maybe tonight God will work in someone's heart to up their missions giving. You can give more so that more can be done with our missionaries. Lastly, how can you be involved in worldwide missions? Could it be that in this room tonight, God is calling someone to get up and go? To go. You say, that would be a big sacrifice. Yep. Yep. Someone needs to be a Paul and a Barnabas. Someone needs to say, I'm willing to go into utter darkness where 0.02% of a people group know anything about Jesus. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to tell. That might mean that you have to take cold showers. That might mean that you have to sleep on a hard bed. That might mean that you have to drink water that isn't you know, as clean as what you're used to. That might mean that you might have to be a little uncomfortable. But if God's calling you, you'll never be any more happy than you would be inside the will of God. Many Christians in America are so comfortable they've lost their backbone. They don't have any guts. We need to remember, no guts, no glory. On a regular basis in my prayer time, when I'm on my knees talking to the Lord, I ask the Lord this question, if you were to call me, would I be willing to go? If you were to call me to the most uncomfortable geographical location where people live on planet Earth, would I be willing to sell my home, resign this church, and go? I don't know that he ever will. But if he does, I ought to be ready to go. And you ought to be ready to go. Are you praying? Are you giving? Are you surrendered? Are you surrendered to whatever God's will is? I I think it's time for God's people tonight to just say, Lord, your life is mine. Or rather, my life is yours. My life is whatever you want from me. My life is a blank sheet of paper with my signature at the bottom. You call, and I'll trust that you can know what I'll handle, and I'll do it. How about it tonight, Christian? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Are we involved in worldwide missions? Are we involved in reaching these unreached people groups? Are we praying for laborers to be sent? Are we willing ourselves to go? Are we giving so others can go? Are we praying for those who are already there doing the work? Are we surrendered to whatever God would want from our lives? Parents, are you willing to loosen the grip on your children and let them go to the mission field? That might mean that your grandbabies grow up on the other side of the world. Are you willing to let God call your children to worldwide missions? Let's all stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, tonight I pray... You would work in our hearts. Lord, you're not calling every single person in this room to go to the mission field. But you might be calling somebody. But one thing I know that you are doing is you're working in our hearts to be constantly aware and constantly compassionate. 
toward a world that's dying and going to hell with no gospel preachers. Lord, we pray that you would send laborers into your harvest. We pray that you would help us to give and pray for those that go. Oh, Lord, stir our hearts this evening. Holy Spirit of God, you do a work in each individual's heart that only you can do. Lord, move in our midst, we beg you, in Jesus' name.